Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Shannon Wilburn. She's a certified franchise executive and from the people from my hometown, probably know her better as the co-founder of Just Between Friends. Thank you for being on the show today, Shannon. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I already kind of told you ahead of the show what my ongoing joke is. You were born and now you ended up on a show about podcast or a podcast about mergers and acquisitions. Could you just give us an origin story? What got you started in being an entrepreneur? How did you to move into that space? And then we'll talk a little bit later about how did you do your exit and what are you up to now? Okay, that's awesome. And I tell this story to franchisees about once a quarter, and it takes me 45 minutes just to tell the story. So I'm going to try and <laughs> I'm going to try and do it in a short span of time. But when when I was 12 years old, I have an identical twin sister. And my dad was CFO of an oil and gas company in Midland, Texas. And he was the breadwinner of our family. And my mom had put him through school. And at the age of 33, he developed multiple sclerosis. And he had the MS that was the rare kind, which is progressive. And so he went from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair in the span of six weeks. And that job that he had, he went on disability. And so our life changed significantly. We had just built a brand new custom home around an atrium and my mom and dad had two brand new cars in the driveway and they sold the brand new cars and got a used car, one car, because my dad couldn't drive at that point. And we moved into a rent house and our life changed significantly. And that CFO was still in my dad. (laughs) And so he took, he said, okay, we are living on this very, very limited budget fraction of what was going on. And he said, here's your clothing budget to teenage girls. Here's your clothing budget. You can spend it all in January or you can divvy it up among the months. And, but once it's gone, it's gone. And so don't come to me in May if you want a prom dress and you've spent all of your clothing budget in January through April. So that was the beginning of my sister and I learning about consignment and how to shop on a budget. And so we would go to the consignment stores and if we didn't love it, we didn't get it because we didn't have the money. I look back on that and the budgeting portion of that, it was really probably really good for me to learn at that early age. But fast forward to college, I met and married my husband of now 32 years and he was a youth minister. So he got a youth ministry position. We moved from Abilene, Texas to Tulsa, Oklahoma and did youth ministry. And we started thinking about having kids. And I knew that as an elementary education teacher, that I really would like to stay home. But also youth ministers don't make a lot of money. And so how was I going to do this? And so I told my mom, hey, if you ever hear of anything where I can make any money to stay home with the kids, I said, tell me about it. And she had some friends that went to an event in Fort Worth and she called me and said, Hey, there's this consignment event. It's like a pop-up event where families come together and sell their unused items. And it's not a storefront. It's not a shop. It just comes one day and then it's gone a couple of days later. And so she gave me the idea. So I pitched it to a friend of mine named Devin Tackett, who was the co-founder of Just Between Friends in Tulsa. And I said, here's the idea. What do you think about this? It sounded like a lot of work because it is. And that's where our partnership formed. So we planned our very first Just Between Friends event in my living room with 17 consigners where our friends brought their gently used children's and maternity item 
children's and maternity items and dropped them off. And we had a two-day sale in my living room. Someone tried to buy my couch. (laughs) We used the kitchen drawers as cash drawers. And that was the beginning of just between friends. We didn't know that we were going to turn it into a franchise system later. It was really just to meet a need that we had. I had a two-year-old and a one-year-old and she had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. We're like, we have got to figure out a way to make some money and help our friends save money and make money. So that's what we did. That event, we had the sellers asked us, when are you doing this again? The shoppers said, when are you doing this again? And we looked at each other and we're like, okay, I guess we're doing this again. So six months later, we moved from my small living room to a three-car garage in South Tulsa because that was the big house and we would have more room in a three-car garage than my living room. We did an event there and then every six months was a cadence. In 2000, we moved to the Tulsa Fairgrounds, which was a huge leap of faith because it was very expensive. We knew we weren't going to make any money, but we knew that once we started going there, people would start attending the events and they did and they came out in droves and Tulsa was a great spot to start a business just because people really supported it. Three years later, we started franchising the business because we had friends and family asking us, hey, can we do this in our town? And so that was kind of where it started. But I exited in December of 2022. So I moved back to Oklahoma from California in, I think, 2007 and got married we had our first child in 2010 while my wife was pregnant we walked through the tulsa fairgrounds and we got like our stroller we got a lot of stuff from friends and family but we got a few items from there i was there because i the first exit i had was i exited from that the tulsa franchise in june of 2011 but i was there as and that was when we started franchising honestly ron i thought okay the tulsa sale was doing maybe $150,000 for an event. And I thought, okay, we're going to tap out here pretty at this point. This was in 2000, 2003. And I thought we're not really going to grow more than 150,000 per event. And that event that you came to, we probably did 700. (laughs) I say that the one I went to, like I said, it was probably 2000. He was born in 2010. So it was probably a couple months before she had him. So she was still pregnant. It was probably September, October, somewhere in that, October, yeah. November. Yes. Uh, we August. did it in March and August. Yeah. So it would have been August. Yeah. Because it was, trying to think <laughs> how, because she seemed pretty pregnant, but August would have been about six months. So yeah. Anyway, we walked through there and it was big. You guys were occupying pretty much the whole lower level of the Tulsa State Fairgrounds, like main pavilion building, which is thousands of feet square feet so i think we were i think we took about probably sixty thousand square feet at that point yeah that's cool so let's talk about where it is now so like now as being like you sold and exited but like how big is just between friends so when i took an exit last year we did almost 42 million in system-wide sales for the 150 something franchises that we have. So we have franchises that are just starting out that are having small events. And then this last week we had an event that did $840,000. So it is, it's all across the gamut, but the franchising space has been good to us. It's helped us really share the model and helped people become business owners and take this awesome business that is great for families to communities around because there were, I didn't have money to do corporate locations. That was just never going to happen. And so franchising was a great way. I'm a big proponent of franchising for sure. Let's talk about the structure of the business. You guys, you came up with an idea, you started in your living room. How did it mature? Like what was the growing pains? Did you guys ever try like, you grew up going to Plato's Closet type of places where you were doing consignment clothes like for your shopping. Did you guys ever try to venture out of the children's clothes as your kids got older? Did you guys stick with the model from day one? What was the the learning process and how did you guys like define that model? Well, Ron, that's a great question. There's so much learning because when you take my business partner at the time was a journalism major. I was an elementary education major. Neither of us had business backgrounds. But what we learned 
honestly, from the beginning is if you surround yourself with smart people. So you can't expect that you are going to have all of the strengths needed to grow the business. But if you can connect with people who are good at what they do, they can help guide you and help you stay away from some of those traps that new business owners get in. Not that we didn't get it. We have had plenty. In fact, when I do my, I call it my spiel to franchise owners about the history of the brand, I will mention many of the challenges that we had. We had a federal legislative issue that we went through. We had, we almost went bankrupt in 2010. We've had franchise leave because they're unhappy. I'm telling you, I think there are many, many failure stories in within our own story, but if you can learn from them, so you don't do them again. That's what we try to do. But I am not sitting up here as an expert who's never had issues because we've had many. <laughs> but well, let's dive into some of the lessons learned. Let's like we learn a lot through our own. As much as it sounds mean or whatever, we learn a lot through our own pain and, and anguish, right? We won't. You learn best from the things. I'll never do that again. <laughs> so, what are some of the things that led to almost going bankrupt or okay. franchisees leaving? In franchising, the goal of a franchisor. So if you have a business out there that is doing well in one location and you think, oh, I want to franchise this. First off, I have lots of advice and expertise for you, but the main goal of a franchisor, and I'm not sure I really knew this when we went into franchising, but the main goal of a franchisor is to have highly satisfied, profitable franchisees. So that was our goal. And we did not always make that happen. I think in 2010, what happened was just the learning curve of small business is I wasn't great at budgeting. And so honestly, we didn't have a budget. And until about this time, we were just, we have money in the bank. This is our money. And so we can spend it. And we just weren't great at managing cash flow. And in 2009, 2008, where the rest of the country was going through a really hard time, we were growing like crazy. We had been on a couple of media appearances nationally and the country was going through a hard time. People were leaving corporate America in droves and they were flocking to franchising. And our business is recession proof. So right now our franchise owners are going gangbusters. And what I contribute that to is inflation and people are being laid off and they this is a way for families to save money so they're coming our way to sell their children's items to make and save money but at that time we sold 30 franchises in 2009 which was our biggest year still to date i think the next highest year is like 15 or 16. so we sold 30 franchises in 2009 we didn't have a staff we didn't have processes in place we didn't have a lot of the stuff that just you should have in place when, when you're a small business owner. And so taking franchisees from the sale, selling it and taking in a franchise fee, because that's how right. franchisee works. You pay a lump sum initially. We had that revenue, but it went right back out the door very quickly because franchising, especially our brand, because you're not opening up a location. It's not like a brick and mortar location. Well, even with a brick and mortar, but it, a service-based business is up and running in 45 days. That's not us. It takes a little while to kind of ramp up to the event and your first and second events are smaller and the revenue coming back to corporate at that time was minuscule, like a couple hundred bucks, something like that. And so here we were in 2010, we had these 30 brand new franchises plus the ones we had sold before. And we're trying to support that many franchises. So the infrastructure was not in place. Financially, the infrastructure was not in place and the resource of people was not in place. And we had the year of austerity in 2010. Don't spend a dollar, don't buy a paperclip, don't do anything on the franchise side because we had separate P&Ls for the, for the Tulsa business and then for the franchise system. But don't buy anything unless you absolutely have to. And that was really, I think that was really a turning point for me and my business partner. So we realized in 2010 that 
Devin and I would go to the, and this was your, this was in your time. You said 2010, we would go to the Tulsa event and we would focus, focus, focus on the Tulsa sale because we were also a franchisee of our brand and we had the largest sale at the time in the franchise system. And we would go focus, focus, focus 12 weeks leading up to the event. And then maybe a couple of weeks after the event. And at that time we were kind of ignoring the franchise owners and they're over there. Hey, we need help. We paid, we need help. And we were ignoring them. So in 2011, March of 2011, we had the discussion about we need to reorganize the company. And so Devin took the Tulsa business as her 100% business. And I took the franchise system as my 100% business. And it allowed us to focus on what we needed to focus on. She could focus on the Tulsa business and I could focus on the franchisees. And that goal of highly satisfied, profitable franchisees. And so that was kind of the beginning of how can I do this? So that was one issue. I mean, I could sit here and tell you 10 different stories like this. I'm interested in, this might be a little off topic, but the logistics behind setting up 60 to 70,000 square foot, you're going to run the show for seven days. How many days before that were you collecting material, putting it in there? Like put Because everything was organized, semi-organized. It wasn't like chaotic, but it was on display racks. And like there was yeah, some all, infrastructure. It's that- like all the strollers are together. Yeah. All the boys, Spider-Man toys are together. All the um, Polly Pocket or, you know, whatever's popular today. Every All of that is. And then Halloween costumes are together and bikes are together. So it's easy to shop. It's kind of set up like a department store. So- it is. But so there's got to be some logistics behind setting up 70,000 square foot of material it with, to have a seven day event. And then what happens to all the stuff that doesn't sell? So yes. what is the logistics? Like, did you have to rent that pavilion out for two weeks to do a one-week show? Or what did yes. it look like? The it was, side? we would rent the Tulsa Fairgrounds for 14 days. Not inexpensively, by the way. Because <laughs> people will hear me say, oh, that sale did $600,000. And they don't. They're like, wow, they're making all this money. But the goal of this is that that money goes back into the community so they can have it for their own families. But the logistics, we rented it for 14 days. There are things called drop-off days where families, because we don't house this inventory anywhere. It comes from families. We have drop-off days. So you sign up to come drop off your inventory. It goes through an inspection process. We don't take anything ripped, you know, holes, no stains, nothing that has been recalled, all of that take that home with you. And so it goes through an inspection process and then it goes out on the floor based on where the signage is and the racks and the tables are. So sellers put their own merchandise out. And then that happens for, I can only speak for the Tulsa sale right now. I can speak for anyone, but typically how it works is you have one or two drop-off days. Then you have what we call pre-sale, which is anyone who is participating in the sale as a consigner or a team member, they can shop early. And then lots of the events will have prime time shopping. So the public, if you want to pay a fee to shop first, you can do that because of course you may have, you may have 10 peg perego strollers at your event. And one is marked $30 and one is marked 200. It's because the sellers do their own pricing. Okay. That's oh, what yeah. that's what that was me one of my questions. Yeah. How do you value all that stuff, right? The yeah, seller we have the- pricing guides on our website. So we help our customers try to figure that out, but honestly it's what do you think it will sell for? And so that's why you have this gap. It's some people are like I am done with this. I don't want it back and some people are like I'll take that back if it doesn't sell. So all of the consigners on every item, they get to choose whether they want to donate it at the end of the event to a local charity or if they want to come and pick it up. And it can be per item. So you can say, donate all this stuff if it doesn't sell. But if this one item doesn't sell, I want this back because I'll try and sell it somewhere else. I'll give it to a friend or save it for another child. But then, so the event is with a pre-sale day, then open to the public, we were open to the public, I think six or seven days. And then you have what is called breakdown. And that is where you take all the unsold items. We don't call it leftovers because it's still great stuff that just the right person didn't come out. The unsold items get put back into consigner number order. 
and they can choose to come pick up their unsold items or they get donated to a charity. And that's it. So I can imagine the Tulsa location, like I said, we're talking 60, 70,000 square feet, tens of thousands of items, maybe even 100,000 items. The logistics, how many people it take to sort that stuff out, get it into place and then sort it out at the end and get it back into some sense of order so that people could come pick it up. You guys run a crew of what, a dozen or two or how many people? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) I know I was wrong. (laughs) Okay. So I honestly, I cannot remember how many, and we ran it differently back then. So now we run on team members and I know our, our COO actually is the, the owner of the Tacoma franchise in Washington state. Mm -hmm. And we were talking to a PEO company recently and trying to figure out cost for the employment stuff that she was looking at. And she said she has 90 team members and she did over half a million dollars. So it was probably somewhere around a hundred, but the smaller you are, the less days you're open. All of that plays into how many people you need. And there are team leads. And I mean, it's pretty, if you do it right, it can run very efficiently. So you're saying the Tulsa event had close to a hundred people running that? In there? Oh, I think, I think we had more because we were not, we've learned a lot in the last 12 or 13 years on how to be more process oriented and how to utilize less people working for longer hours. I'm just thinking for two weeks out of every six months, a hundred people converging onto a single 120, 30, whatever it was, people converging on a single location to sort out 60 to 70,000 square foot of baby merchandise, sell it and get it back either to a charity or to the owner. If it doesn't sell the logistics of that in itself. That's why you need to buy a franchise, Ron, because we haven't figured out. Uh, I think event planning, it's funny because I'm planning another event for one of my other businesses and had a two hour meeting yesterday and my employee for that business has not done a lot of event planning. And I was with a professional event planner who like knows exactly, and I would call myself an event planner, but she's a certified event planner and she was helping me think about stuff. And my employee said, wow, you don't think about all the logistics behind an event and it was two hours for us just to kind of get the calendar in order to start doing all of these tasks and being a part of a franchise, I think is, it's so helpful. Any franchise, I mean, our franchise, of course, but any franchise that's been around for any length of time, they have, you're buying basically a business in a box and you're, you don't have to figure out the marketing because it's figured out for you. And here's the collateral material and here's the email campaigns. And this is when you need to send them. And so you have all of this help where your goal is to be in business for yourself, but not by yourself. Now you're I'm curious, what's this other event business you got? So my husband and I live on 15 acres in Jinx, Oklahoma, and it feels Jinx is the uh, precious town. It's awesome. And it's growing. It feels really Honestly, it feels really bougie to have 15 acres in the middle of Jinx. And it was totally a God story of how we got this property. I mean, right. totally a God story. We should not own this property. <laughs> there were like 10 people in line for this property and the Lord allowed us to have it. But we opened up the property in 2018. This is my, I still get to call myself a business owner because I'm doing this. And, but we opened up the property in 2018 to allow photographers. It's picturesque for Oklahoma. It would not be picturesque for a lot of places, but for Oklahoma, the property that we live on is beautiful. Lots of 200-year-old pecan trees. We have a beautiful Clearwater Creek over a rock bed that's running through it, wildflowers. And so we have put up arbors and four-foot live edge swings from these big, tall pecan trees. And so photographers come out here and use it as an outdoor venue to take pictures. And the event, I haven't even announced this to anyone. In fact, at some point today, I was going to crowdsource it with my photographers. I'm 99% sure we're doing it, but I wanted to just get one more. I wanted to vet it with a few more people before we spend the money. But it's basically a family-friendly event where, so we have daylight hours where the photographers are here. Right. 
this resource of this property is not taken advantage of during the nighttime hours. So we've been kind of brainstorming about how can we, how can we leverage what we already have in the nighttime hours? And so we're going to do a Halloween event and we're going to call it the Boneyard at Coal Creek. And it's going to be where families can bring their littles for a family friendly event. It's basically dressed up skeletons sponsors in the community that want to sponsor skeleton and do like a scavenger hunt and that type of thing in the evening hours. So I'll let you know how it goes. I'm interested. That's cool. I always love people who come up with creative ideas and stuff. Just the entrepreneurial spirit of it. Like you were saying, most people don't ask the question about logistics. Well, that's exactly where my mind went is like, if I was to create this, what would be the roadblock? What would be, what's here's, the, here's my story brand of how we're going to do this and how we're going to communicate it. Awesome. <laughs> it's just the way our gears turn differently. I think, I honestly think that as a natural entrepreneur, your gears just turn differently. I can't, I can walk into a barber shop and like to, well, I don't do that much anymore, but uh, if I walk into any business, I walk into a coffee shop, I'll notice, okay, well, I've been here for two hours. I've only seen 35 people walk in the door. They are average spending eight dollars and the next thing i know my, my gears are like how do they even survive they're like the rent here's got to be eight grand and like i'm doing the numbers and it's that's, not i do it too i yeah. do it too <laughs> i think that's because once you have the idea and the, and know the process of what it takes someone who's been doing who's been an entrepreneur or been doing business for any length of time you can say oh that marketing, oh, ooh, that customer service. And it's horrible because I want to give advice to people all the time. Just ask my kids. It's anytime I see something like, wow, if we just did it this way, you could probably get a few more customers. That's a good segue into what I was about to ask you. I've noticed, and I've worked in the tech industry mostly before I went out on my own and did the thing. I noticed when we had remote offices or we picked up a remote office or something, a lot of times they would teach us. We've been doing something for a long time. We bring somebody on to help us. And next thing you know, they're teaching us better ways to do things. How often is that true in franchises where you guys got a franchisee that's just rocking it? And you like you start analyzing what they're doing that's slightly different than what you told them to do and then bring that back for other people to use. Does that actually happen in the franchise? That happens world? all the time. And it's amazing because we get to stay innovative because you're, you are getting all of this brain power, the brain trust. And we have one of our core values is we are better together. And it's true because we are better together. When we have an issue, it's not just the CEO solving the issue. It is 150 franchise owners that come together during COVID. We were an event-based business where oh. you gathered. <laughs> we had to really gather the franchise owners. I think 26 franchise owners came together and we formed mm -hmm. a task force and people were like, what do we need to do with our marketing? Oh my gosh, we need to get rid of the word event. We cannot call ourselves an event because that is taboo. We're going to get slaughtered and we need to figure out how do we space people in line? Usually we have really long lines. Oh, okay. We're going to use this technology to do this. And we also have a, my co-founder is no longer in the business. She retired in 2020. And so we created a, a scholarship in her name and the scholarship is called the Devin Tackett Founder Spark Scholarship. It is for ideas ideas that you come up with. We have a panel of judges that vote on and you get, I mean, you get $750 to try your idea. It may cost $1,500 for you to try your idea, but you get $750 from the Franchise Support Center to do that innovation in your location for the process and for the purpose of if it goes well, it can be system-wide. And so it, that's just part of our research and development of trying it out at other locations. You mentioned hive mind and mastermind. Do you guys actually do masterminds? Do you like group your franchisees into groups and say, yeah. I want you to meet on a monthly basis and set accountability partners or any of that type of stuff? Yeah, they're peer groups. Awesome. That's actually, a, I don't know, maybe other franchises do. I've interviewed at least 120 people in the buying, selling, growing business space. Out of that, I can probably count on a single hand how many of them are in the franchise space. Right? Well, I can introduce you to some people because I'm very involved with the International Franchise Association. So, and lots of buying and selling going on there. The kind of the trend right now in franchising and probably in any private equity world is um, platform companies. So, yeah. you get, if you've heard of the concept called Urban Air, Urban Air was, is like an adventure park, indoor adventure park, and they have, created something called Unleashed Brands. 
and they are buying up other franchises that are their strategic partners to that unleashed to urban air. So you have like Snapology, you have Little Jim, you have, or is it Little Jim? I know Snapology, I know Class 101, Premier Martial Arts, and there's, I think there's, I think they have six under right. their brand and they leverage legal marketing, really operations is very different at the brand level, but they can leverage some of the CFOs, right. leverage those costs. Yeah. So that's kind of lots and lots of acquisitions happening in franchising and really has been the private equity space really took note of franchising because of the recurring revenue of royalties. It's very less risky for private equity to go in and have something where you have recurring revenue. Oh yeah. I'm a big fan of recurring revenue. That's why yeah. I did the real estate world. That's why I do, I run the media. I buy and sell the media companies now I'm in my home. <laughs> like that's what I like newsletters, podcasts, websites that do software review, that type of stuff. I will want to hear more about this. Yeah. So the it's recurring revenue. It's just like the only thing that scares me is like a lot of it's content based. Let's circle back around because we, we went on a rabbit hole. I think it's going to impact. The reason I wanted to go down that is it's going to impact you. Is One of the cool things is inside of the franchise model is now you can feed all that content, your standard operating procedure, even now with ChatGPT, you could feed it. Here's my standard operating procedure. Here's what we do. Ask and you, you treat it like you're a treated employee, right? It's like you train it like you're trained an employee. Your job title is you're an advisor on standard operating procedures and improve operational improvements. And that's your job. I'm going to give you my standard operating procedure. I'm going to give you our industry. Your job is to ask me questions that will help you better produce the result we're looking for to improve, improve efficiency and then rewrite my standard operating procedure. And they will ask you a series of seven, eight, 10 questions. Who's your target market? It'll ask you questions you never thought it would ask you. And then it'll rewrite it for you in 35 seconds. It's insane. You should get in and play with there. If you're ever bored and you want to let me know, and I'll actually, we'll fire up a Zoom chat. I'll actually walk you through it with my, I have a paid version. I'll walk you through it with mine. And we'll do a marketing plan for one of your ideas or something and watch how fast this thing can do it. How so. about the Boneyard at Coal Creek marketing ideas? I'll, I'll help you. I got a, <laughs> probably won't be the day. I've got three three shows to record today. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're at a state right now where I really kind of want to get to what are you doing now? Like, let's talk about the exit real quick because I don't think we really covered the significance of what you were able to do with the exit of that. Like, you you, you sold it to a PE firm or something? I didn't. I sold oh. it to my largest performing franchisee. Ah, cool. So tell me about that and then we'll talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, gosh. And this again is takes a long story because it took place over several months. But the gist of it is I knew in 2011 when I took over as a 100% owner, I knew at some level I needed to replace myself. But specifically in 2016, I made the decision through a series of failures, right? That, okay, my accountability chart, my organizational chart is flat. I need to start adding some depth and some expertise. And so in 2017, we added an advisory board, just phenomenal people in franchising to help guide me on some of the decisions that I was making. And so over from from 2016 to 2021, as resources would allow, we started adding more people to our team. And then we went through a process called traction. I don't know if you've ever heard yeah, of I've had him on here. <laughs> I've had the CEO oh, of the company on the show. You have? Oh my gosh. That was a game changer for us going through. And it's a kind of a two-year process where you have an integrator and the premises you have a, I'm sorry, an implementer, you have an integrator and you have a visionary. And in 2021, I hired a president, just really promoted someone from within up to the president level. And I became the visionary and she became the integrator. And this was, this came earlier than I thought it would because my husband during COVID, he had, he got COVID and he has 
previously had one type of cancer, has another type of cancer now. He has four autoimmune diseases. And so we knew if he got COVID, it would not go well. And he did in October of 2020 before vaccinations or anything like that. He developed COVID. And in three days, he was in the hospital and he stayed there for 48 days. He was intubated two different times for eight days the first time, nine days the second time. And then he flatlined. He had a pacemaker put. I mean, it was like, like he's a walking, talking, living, breathing miracle. But what that did for me is I had a little bit of PTSD of going through that with him. Not during, during I was a rock star. He's a senior pastor at our church. And I basically took the communication role of Mitch's communication manager, which was a full-time job, just getting out all of the information about him. But once he came home, learned to walk again and started the process of getting better, I think I that trauma, I guess, that I had gone through with almost losing my husband and me thinking about myself living here by myself, all of the stuff we do and the stories we tell ourselves, I was not feeling like I was being a good leader. I felt like I am, I need to get past this. And so that was a little bit of the process of what I was going through. And so I recognized, had some self-awareness of I am not doing the job I need to be doing as a leader to my franchisees. And this is unfair. It's very unfair. So I need to get a president in here. And Diane took the presidential role really on paper. In I mean, if you were to go back and say, when did she start this position? June of 2021. But honestly, she started it the day my husband went in the hospital right. because I was there for him. And that's where I was going to be, which was in 2020. So anyway, um, Probably in August of 2021, I did something with about five or six of my franchisees where I just kind of kept them on a month or a six week conversation. Like we would have an hour call every month or six weeks. And one of them is my number one franchise owner. And at the end of one of those calls, I think it was in August of 2021, she said, Shannon, I don't know how to ask this, but... If you're ever willing to sell just between friends, I would be interested. And I said, well, thank you so much for having the courage to even bring this up. We do get approached regularly by PE and competitor mm -hmm. and other people who would like to acquire us and or buy us. But I said, let's start talking. And so it was a process of several months of us neither one of us really having gone through this negotiation process to this level. Mm -hmm. My largest franchisee, she had sold at one time she had owned four locations. And so she had sold one of her locations at that time. So she had been through it. She was a franchisee in another brand 15 years ago and they had sold those locations. Her husband was a franchisee in another brand. They had sold that location. So they had that understanding but coming in and buying a business, they had not been on that side of it. And so I think we both learned a lot through this process. And I was very, very thankful because I had an advisory board that I had put in place in 2017, which Jay Duke with BDO, he does m and right. That's his job. Then Mary Thompson with a brand called Neighborly. She's the COO. They have like 30, they've acquired 30 companies over, it used to be the Dwyer Group. So what she does, and so she does that. Josh Wall with Unleash Brands. I told you about Unleash Brands earlier in the podcast and a couple of others, John Francis and Ryan Nala. I just had this dream team of people who really could speak into me and help be my guide really through something that was new. Anyway, we signed a LOI. Then we went on to sign a purchase agreement and we had the transaction happened in December 29th, 2022. So I'm, we're 90 days into this. And so it's not. Can you disclose a ballpark? Okay. If you say no, but can you disclose? Okay. No. okay. Sometimes I know sometimes you're under contract. You can't. And sometimes it's just not comfortable, yeah. but I have yeah. to ask but, everybody on the show, everybody that watches the show is like, why didn't you ask her if I don't, that'd be the number one right. email. like, why didn't you ask her? Yes. Yeah. I will say that we both walked away feeling like we won. Okay. And that part of the process was good. We had evaluation done and it, I knew what I needed to walk yeah. away. And I think that's a, that was an important learning lesson to me is have someone who is guiding you so you don't make a, a lifelong mistake. And so I had done that and just 
lots of people spoke into me and I had great advisors. I know, especially for, uh, for guys because of our male ego that gets in our way, but I have to imagine even for, for a woman uh, CEO, so much of our identity of who we are as human beings is tied into our business. How did you deal with what happens when I sell this? What will I do next? Did you have a definite plan for that? Because I see so many deals dying because the owner trying to sell it just doesn't know what they're going to do next and gets kind of cold feet. So did you start thinking, when did that click in? It's like, man, what am I going to do when this is gone? I started thinking about it. I I don't think it's only a male ego thing. I think it's also a leader. I really love the CEO title. And I don't know if you think poorly of me from that, but I would like to stand in front of people and say, oh, that doesn't matter. But when I found myself at a community event after the transaction and they said, what do you do? And I, uh, 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 what do I do? I was like, I have for 20 years, I've said I'm a business owner and I'm CEO of Just Between Friends. And you said um, it on Fox, you said it on CEN. I mean, you've said it to the world, right? You've been on national yeah. media and presented yeah. yourself as CEO of this national brand. I think what people want to do, Ron, is they want to say, well, now you can be a grandmother. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I can be a grandmother and a CEO. And I have two grandkids, another on the way in the next couple of weeks. Neither of them live here locally. And so, yes, I'm a grandmother and I will want to spend as much time as possible with them, but they're not here locally. So I'm not going to sit at home. That's what, how I would answer it. What are you going to do next? And I'm saying, I don't know. I am waiting on revelation from the Lord about that, but I know what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to sit at home and twiddle my thumbs and I'm not going to be a full-time grandmother at this point. I'm 52. And I, I tell you, I, you're not I still... old enough to be a grandmother. And then I realized I had my kids. Okay. I, I have a, a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old. I started late, right? Yeah. So yep. I, was like, I was like, you got to be about my age. I'm, I just turned 51. So like, you got to be close to my age or younger. There's no way in the world you're old enough to be a grandmother. Yeah. And I was like, wait well, a second. My kids are 27 and 28 right now. So they both have children. And yeah, so, but- I think I told my husband this. I said, I'm so thankful because our, again, I would like to stand in front of people and say my identity is not in just between friends, but it is, it is. I've done it since I was 27 years old. I'm thankful the new owner is letting me have a position for the next three years as brand ambassador and co-founder. I'll never get rid of that title, but I get to, I'm advising the leadership right now. They don't need a lot of advising. Honestly, they're doing a fabulous job, but I'm, I serve a lot kind of as historian Mm -hmm. to come in and say, okay, this is why we made that decision. Make a new decision. If you want to, this is a little bit of history to why the decision was made to do it that way. And that's been fun to be able to not work 50 to 60 hours a week, but still get to have their ear a little bit. And that was really kind of her to let me be able to stay in the brand in that way. And then I told my husband that I'm glad I'm a business owner still with the Coal Creek Farm Mm -hmm. business. Photography business is a small business. Mm -hmm. It is, I, what I love about it is what I loved about JBF in the beginning. It's community-based. You get to be with people in your community, affect their lives in a good, positive way. And then have that good feeling. But I've, I decided I had been coaching clients for the, I mean, honestly, as long as I can remember when someone has said, Hey, you know, can I pick your brain? Can I, and I, yes, let me help you in any way I can. So when I appointed a president that freed up a lot of my time after about six months of her being in that Mm -hmm. position, I found myself with a lot more time to, I wasn't in the down and in stuff. I was in the up and out Mm -hmm. stuff. And so when people would say, when I went to speak at like the emerging franchise or conference or any conferences, you'll have people come up after you and they want help in some area. And so some of those people and some local uh, business owners here in Tulsa, I was just coaching kind of on the side because I had time to do it. And so if someone has told me I should be a coach, they've if one person has told me a hundred have said, you need to be a coach. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's what I want to do, but I'm already doing Mm -hmm. it. And so to legitimize the business, I'm in the process of doing the website. It's called shine executive coaching. And it's really for people. I think, I think being a business owner, it's lonely. And if you can have someone come alongside you in maybe areas where you have weakness or just even for accountability, like that is why I, 
loved having this advisory board because I could go and say, these are the things we're doing great. We're like rocking it in these areas, but here's what keeps me up at night. Right. And so I would just get on the phone with them and say, okay, ah, we really screwed this up. What do I do? And you can't say that to your franchisees. You can't say that to your employees uh, half the time, right? Until You can say it, but unless if you have a, an, until you figure right. out what you're going to do about you need to have kind of some guidance. And I will tell you, it really helps the business owner focus. If I've used a coach in just between friends for years and I just save my issues for them. And we're able, we spend an hour, an hour and a half on the phone and I leave with three pages of notes on what my next step are to solve. So it's basically a good way to kind of, would love to help other people navigate their business so they don't have to hit some of the landmines that I mm -hmm. hit. And I have this great, I don't know, the circle of influence of just wonderful business owners in my life and in my circle of influence that if I don't know the answer to the question, probably we can find someone to right. help. So I'm like, I'm going to do this until I find my next thing. So define your ideal client. If you could pick a single human being off the planet and say, this is the person I would love to help. Who is that? Franchising executives. Franchising executives in a particular market or? No, but maybe founders yeah. because that's where I feel like I can give the most expertise. Founders of small business. What stage? Like, you know? okay, I've got a business. I've already paid for the franchise paperwork or whatever, or I've got a business yeah. and I'm 99% sure I think I should franchise it. What stage do you want to work with me? I would think... Where I feel, I mean, I could help anyone at any stage, but again, ideal, they have you know, five or 10 units open okay. and they're just starting to ramp up. I wish someone would have told me years ago and that when you decide to franchise, you are getting out of the business you're in, which is children's consignment, mm -hmm. and you are getting into the business of franchising. And completely different business models, right. consignment. I need to find people to sell and I need to find people to buy children's consignment items. Right. Franchising, your job is to support people doing right. that. And you support them with legal, legislative, marketing, operations, development. I mean, that's your role is you support them so that they can go run the model that you have for them. But there's all of these things that you just are not necessarily intuitive to business ownership that when's the right time to set up a franchise advisory council. Is there anybody you uh, don't want to coach or is like in any industry or something like, you know what? I just, I'm not... Well, what I've asked my graphic artist to put on the website is that I will have a 30 minute discovery call mm -hmm. with people because I absolutely, if I can't help you, let's not, let's not work together. And so I just need to hear like, what are the problems and the issues that you're having? And I need to be able to see is, can I help with this? And I'm sure if I can't help with it, I probably know I can point someone in the right direction. Okay. But it's funny because I have, there's a, a business owner who's, I think he's 32 years old. I help with the young couples class at my church. And this is engaged or newly married. We have about 35 couples in this engaged or newly married class. And he is a general contractor and so smart, so personable knows how to lead, genuine, just a good person. And he approached me probably about a year ago and said, Hey, would you be open to coaching me? And I was like, I don't know anything about construction. <laughs> I was like, I don't think you want me. And, and this, this of course was before I thought about doing a coaching business or anything like that. And he said, yeah, but Shannon, you know, business. And I'm like, okay, well, fire me at any point. I mean, he wasn't paying me, but he said, I'll pay you. But I said, fire me at any point. This is not a lifetime commitment. And that's kind of how I think, because if my advice has served its purpose and there is, and I've gotten you from here to here, you might need someone else to take you from here to here. And so I just, I think I've got this knowledge in my head that I want to be able to come alongside people and business owners and help them. So anyway, I didn't think I could help someone in, that was a general contractor. 
but turns out awesome. I can. <laughs> We're at the hour. Let's do this real quick. Okay. If somebody could remember one or two things or three things from the show, what would be the key takeaways that you'd want them to remember? Probably surround yourself with smart people. That is why I got to make an exit. Why I got to have that transaction is because I had people speaking into me, man, for 25 years. When you take a teacher and you become a business owner, there's this huge learning curve. I think another piece of advice would be to know your strengths, know what you're good at and know where your weaknesses are as well. And if you can hire people to do the tasks where it's not necessarily your strength, that will, that was probably a really hard thing that I learned um, probably more recent than I want to admit was in regards to technology. We technology, Shannon Wilburn's weakness. Yeah. <laughs> Yet we didn't have a CTO. And so who makes these decisions? Well, me. And when you don't have the level of expertise or knowledge, it got us into a lot of trouble. So I would say, know your weaknesses and know your strengths for sure and work in those strengths. So, and then I think I always, of course, give people the advice to find a way to give back in their business just for it being a purpose-filled business. Awesome. awesome. Somebody wants to work with you or whatever, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Uh, Probably on LinkedIn. That's a good way. Or my new email (laughs) for the Shine Executive Coaching is Shannon, spelled how it sounds, S-H-A-N-N-O-N at shineexecutivecoaching.com. That could be it, but LinkedIn is I'll make sure we include your LinkedIn link inside of the show notes for those of you guys that are listening. And I appreciate you being on the show today. Hang out for a few seconds and we'll call that a show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now